Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. All right, hello, hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode. I am very delighted and excited and energized to have Anthony Mint on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Honestly, it's an absolute pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation. And of course, we always love to get the show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the moment. Uh, yeah, so I'm a chef, essentially kind of turned climate crusader at this point. Um, I began my career in restaurants uh, in San Francisco in a really improbable way. Um, we started doing pop-ups before that even was a term. Uh, journalists kind of coined the phrase around what we were doing. Um, we did pop-ups, you know, once or twice a week for like two years, uh, really helped kind of establish that movement. It turned into a permanent pop-up called Mission Chinese Food that became successful. We opened another location in New York, um, ostensibly in a shitty Thai takeout window. Uh, and miraculously that one won um, New York Times Restaurant of the Year in 2012. And so we kind of were like off to the races. Um, cool. I can get into a lot more detail on that if you want, but um, definitely. But basically at some point along the line, um, my wife and I had a daughter and we just started to think a lot about climate change and the future. And so we wanted to kind of shift our focus from um, basically just running restaurants to kind of making the industry part of the solution. Love it, man. Th- thanks for doing that. I-, I really appreciate it. And did you go to like culinary school or anything? Uh, I didn't. I'm, I'm self-taught um, in the kitchen. So a lot of, you know, our uh, driving force in a way is almost just like this can do spirit and this feeling of like, why doesn't somebody just do X, Y, Z? And then as it turns out, that is often because doing X, Y, Z is really hard. (laughs) For real, man. Yeah, no, self-taught's the way to go. It's the painful route, but I think it's the most fulfilling in my humble opinion. So yeah, let's let's unpack Mission Chinese food a little bit more. So tell me about your experience kind of getting started. Because I had read somewhere online that like you had like this resounding success in San Francisco, that people were actually getting mad that there were so many people in the street and you like started going door to door asking people like, what exactly? Well, we... I mean, it begins even before the pop-up, we started doing a gourmet, essentially kind of like food truck, like taco truck. Um, And it was around the time that Twitter was starting and different things were starting. So it just kind of felt like a whole new world of possibilities. Um, We did that literally just for like four weeks and like each week it was like busier and crazier. And then the fourth week, um, you know, there were like tons of people online and um, this neighbor who was like a real estate mogul um like the ceo of a real estate company you know kind of drove by in his bmw convertible like yelling at everybody and (laughs) called called the police on and people who were like you know drinking a beer in a brown bag standing in line and stuff like that um and we just kind of decided like shoot i don't want to like have this fight every week you know and so then we just kind of went door to door in the mission looking for places that you know had a had like not that much business and where we could kind of work with the business to do a pop-up there cool so it, it's called mission because like the neighborhood was mission not because there was like a mission behind the the business right yeah that's that's right but actually when i mean the whole time we were doing these pop-ups we just it was a hobby and we felt like you know definitely we were not expecting that to turn into a career um and so each week the you know the pop-up had a beneficiary where like we kept 100 a couple hundred bucks to like cover our time and then all the remaining proceeds went to local 
um, food banks and local food pantries and things. Um, so even the original Mission Chinese Food, you know, has always kind of had a charitable component. Um, I think we've raised over like one and a half million meals for the local food bank um, since we started. But again, at some point we started to feel like, okay, climate change is like, you know, a really important, nobody's really working on this in the restaurant industry. So let's give it a shot. Yeah. And I definitely want to talk all about Zero Footprint and what you're doing with that. But were you, were you working like a, a full-time job while you're doing this pop-up as well? Cause you said it was only a couple of days a week. Yeah. We, I was a, I was a line cook at a really good restaurant called Bar Tartine mm-hmm. and kind of working full-time there. And then, you know, prepping for mission street food before and after. And, um, my wife was a PhD student at Berkeley. So she was like, you know, teaching classes, taking classes, et cetera. And would be like running back to like, um, kind of be the cashier at the food truck and different things. Oh, so badass, man. Are you from San Fran originally? Uh, I grew up in the DC suburbs, like in Northern Virginia and moved to San Francisco in 2004. Really cool, man. All right. Let, let's talk about how mission, which is just, it's just called mission now, right? The restaurant, there's two. Uh, the New York one is just called Mission and has kind of like branched away from like weird Chinese to just uh, whatever the chef, uh, okay. <laughs> super awesome chef, Danny, uh, whatever he feels like. Um, the one in San Francisco is still Mission Chinese food and it's more like um, in a Chinese hole in the wall serving like weird uh, versions of traditional Chinese food. Yeah, cool. So, so how did how did your experience with this kind of transfer and inspire you to start this zero food print project, which is, seems to be your main passion now? Well, in a lot of ways, what happened is the improbable success of Mission Chinese Food just like, um, we almost like ascended to the like celebrity chef world, you know, through the back door. And so we would be like at the, you know, at the chef conferences, like drinking beers with the number one chef in the world and kicking a soccer ball around and this kind of stuff. And then, you know, after we had a daughter, we just started to realize like, well, first of all, we have a platform, we could start doing something but also we have access to all this cultural capital and like really even like the fiscal capital of the industry is massive. Um, So for reference, like the restaurant industry pre-COVID was $860 billion, bigger than all of food retail, bigger than all of agriculture. Um, In the US, it was uh, between restaurants and food service, like at cafeterias and stuff, one out of 10 workers. So just like absolutely huge industry but also, you know, everybody's kind of like running around, doesn't have time to use the bathroom or like eat lunch or whatever, you know, you're worried about like putting out fires. Uh, is my dishwasher drunk? You know, my meat order didn't show up, whatever thing. And so nobody really is engaged with like climate and like two generations down the line, you know, what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, I'd say it's, it's a blessing that this this uh, this great responsibility and honor is placed on you. Go, you said getting into the the upper echelons of the restaurant industry through the back door. It's glad, I'm glad that someone like you has has a bit of the spotlight. Can you can you tell me exactly what Zero Foodprint is? Yeah, so we began by trying to basically help chefs and restaurants um, become part of the solution, and so we would work with the restaurant to conduct a life cycle assessment. They would make some best practice changes, you know, maybe tweak the menu, um, change some equipment use and different things. But basically what we found is there was always a footprint left, you know, like what is a life cycle assessment? Oh, you know, it's basically like, um, you're analyzing the carbon footprint of all the different 
factors of the operation, you know, so the energy use, the waste hauling, the laundry, the ingredients. Um, and so you would do that kind of assessment. And what we found is basically in almost every case, ingredients were the vast majority of the restaurant's carbon footprint. Like at Mission Chinese, it was like 70 or 75% of the carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. And so, <clears throat> you know, if you think about it, like if you're a Chinese restaurant, if you're a burger shop, like you're not all of a sudden gonna switch to become like a raw, you know, vegan restaurant. Like you're kind totally. of doing business as it is. And so we, you know, there's limitations to, uh, all of that research in terms of like um, the the cherry tomato from a good farm versus a bad, you know a conventional farm or whatever, and frankly, there's just not that much data about the difference from one operation to another in terms of like farming. Mm -hmm. um, and so, what we started to learn is just that there's a much much bigger impact from changing how food is grown than just choosing different ingredients within the current system. Yeah, no, be, beyond a doubt, how we grow things is, is so, is so essential. And that's, it goes into land use as well, which is super, super important. But so is, are you running a corporation or is it a nonprofit organization? What exactly is your, your group? I'm sorry. So Zero Footprint's a nonprofit. And so we began doing this kind of work oriented around um, a restaurant or an operations carbon footprint. And then in 2019, we began collaborations with um, state agencies in California, like the Department of Food and Agriculture, uh, to, to basically begin a different approach, which is more centered around the opportunity for uh, improving or the opportunity to support climate solutions. So rather than kind of focus on what you're doing, um, it's more like focusing on what you could do. And that kind of changes the whole script from like, you know, delaying the inevitable anxiety, like crawling to bed, it's inevitable to just like, oh, we can totally solve it. Um, and part of uh, some of, you know, our approach and a lot of like this uh, almost like societal shift on climate has been informed by this organization, Project Drawdown. Mm -hmm. I mean, so you may know all about it, but, you know, essentially hundreds of climate experts came together to kind of analyze their solutions in their respective um, sectors, you know? So some people were analyzing renewable energy, some were analyzing food waste reduction, you know, some were analyzing regenerative ag, some were analyzing educating girls. And so for each strategy, they kind of estimated the plausible adoption rate and the cost benefit, like how much would it cost to implement it at that scale? How many tons of, you know, billions of tons of carbon would come out of the atmosphere at that level? And then how much would it save society? And so what's amazing is that you know, this research is showing that if we just do all the solutions at their plausible rates of adoption, we could lower global temperatures. We could take a trillion tons of carbon out of the atmosphere, literally just solve the whole climate crisis. It would cost about $29 trillion globally. And that, you know, could roll out over time between now and 2050. So $29 trillion is a lot of money, yeah. but it's also just 1% of GDP each year. And so it really frames it, you know, from like impossible to more like totally doable. And, you know, if it was going to cost a hundred percent of GDP each year, like, okay, I, I would admit it, we're fucked. But if it's like just 1%, <laughs> then it becomes like super easy to do. Yeah, no, I, I love the way you look at it like that. And you, and then your plan is to have restaurants could offset their, their carbon footprints with a, with a 1% like fee, right? That's kind of one of the ideas zero footprint re represents. 
Yeah, and so it's we don't use the word offset because that has like a really technical meaning, mm-hmm. but just you would basically be changing food production, improving farming, and doing it as much or more good than the impact of your meal otherwise. So <clears throat> it's basically giving you know citizens, consumers, diners, really anybody, just a way to immediately become part of the solution. Yeah. And that's, that's what we need. We need everyone to get involved. Yeah. I love that. When you say 1%, it's like no big deal. I also love what you said about turning distress to opportunity. I think that's, that's so essential right now because it can be really daunting to think about everything that's going on. But then you also think about it as if there's all these problems we got, you know, we are entrepreneurs, we come up with solutions, but um, yeah. So I want to, let's talk a bit about regenerative farming. Um, so how does regenerative farming compare to like the, the, the you know, the, the prevailing idea is like, oh, we need to plant all these trees to say, to save the planet. But really, you know, the, the one of the the biggest impacts is in agriculture. So I just want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I mean, the first thing is that regenerative farming, you know, way is just kind of like good farming. Uh, a lot of indigenous groups, a lot of just uh, sustainable, uh, good stewards of the land have been doing these practices for years. So what's new is the science around both kind of like the global potential and also kind of like each individual farm's potential. Um, And so at the global level, like there's some incredible stats, you know, like this esteemed soil scientist from Ohio State is on record saying like, you know, if we could just increase the soil carbon globally by, you know, a couple percent that would offset all emissions in the world, you know? And I mean, we know that farming conventionally is systematically and gradually reducing the amount of carbon in the soil you're plowing it, you're pouring chemicals, you're killing the life in the soil, it's starting to oxidize, go in the atmosphere. We know this and it's been like, you know, hundreds of billions of tons of carbon from doing that over a few decades. And I think what's exciting about regenerative egg is you can basically like undo all that damage from many decades in just like one decade. So in terms of planting trees, um, it's almost like the analog to planting trees, except Mm. for instead of the end result being like, you know, a few big tree trunks that are like all this biomass, it's soil biology, uh, you know, it's microbes in the soil, it's fungus, it's nematodes and worms and all the good things, but it's also durable soil carbon that is the result of, you know, that organic matter and the microbiology, you know, doing the equivalent of like pooping or dying or whatever. And so as that biological cycle is happening, it's possible to build soil much more quickly than scientists thought. So scientists used to think that you could build soil like topsoil and sort of like that soil carbon from like from rock dust, essentially sort of like mineral weathering over millennia. And now they're starting to understand through new biogeochemistry, like, oh, you could just like build it in a few years as that biological cycle is taking place. And it's not just part of the carbon cycle of like a plant dying and growing each year. It's actually the biology in the soil you know, creating more carbon in the soil and then dying and growing and creating more and more. And so it's, it's a whole new understanding that almost has just begun in like the last five or 10 years, but it's happening so quickly that like, you know, you have all the people in the regenerative movement are super excited about it, but now you've got like, you know, regenerative ag centered in like the Biden climate plan and stuff in the last year. And so, you know, my hope is that society will start to view regenerative ag and renewable energy, like as you know, the two like top tier solutions, and you know, regen- renewable energy. It took years and decades, but at this point, I think we all pretty much agree that it's like 
inevitable, right? It's going to happen. And it's just like how quickly that happens. Mm -hmm. And with regenerative ag, it's like the conversation's just starting, but hopefully we'll reach that same point in like five years or something that everyone's just like, okay, amazing. How quickly can we change acres? How can we send money towards changing acres as quickly as possible? Yeah. Or with help from you, hopefully a bit sooner than five years, but I'm, I'm a bit of a naive optimist when it comes to that kind of stuff. But yeah, I love the way you put it when it comes to, yeah, we call it renewable energy or energy efficiency, which is you doing less emissions. And then in addition, we also have all the, uh, what, what is it? The legacy emissions that are still out there already. And this is the solution that's going to pull both of them out. I've talked about carbon sequestration in the show a couple times, but well, yeah, I mean, Phil, Phil must love you. How, how does, uh, how does this look on like a, a practical basis? Like how can we, what, what do farmers actually do to in, increase their carbon content? Like on a day-to-day thing. Yeah. So it totally depends on the kind of farm and the region. And in part, that's why regenerative agriculture is a little bit of a mysterious term, um, mm-hmm. you know, like with organic, it's pretty clear what organic certification is. You're not using these banned chemicals or whatever with regenerative. It could be planting cover crops. It could be reducing tillage. A really big one is applying compost instead of fertilizer. Um, you know, if you're a, ra- a ranch, you could be like planting trees and hedgerows and again, applying compost. So like one example that really, you know, almost like inspired us to go all in on this movement was um, the work from this organization, the Marine Carbon Project. And so, you know, a lot of time where society has been like framing beef as, you know, public enemy number one in the food system environmentally. And there's this really big opportunity to shift that script because Mm. basically the way we produce beef is a big source of emissions through feedlots. But the way the beef production system works is you know, cattle are out on land for a full year before they go in the feedlot. And so there's almost like two whole separate systems. There's that feedlot that we don't really like with, you know, the antibiotics and the manure lagoons and all the stuff. And then there's 760 million acres of rangeland with cattle on it. And then that's just like one big opportunity to sequester carbon. And so, so we learned about this project, the Marine Carbon Project, and they were um, working with really sustainable producers like Albert Strauss um, from Strauss Family Creamery. There's a great ranch, Stemple Creek Ranch. Uh, we were serving beef from Stemple Creek Ranch at a re- uh, restaurant we were running called The Perennial. And uh, I can tell you all about that too. But basically the numbers behind this research going on were like so mind blowing and optimistic um, that it really made us wanna you know, devote our work and our careers to this. And so they were, um, they were doing regenerative grazing on the whole ranch and 3,500 acre ranch or something like that. So on the whole ranch, they were already taking carbon out of the atmosphere through this grazing. The numbers were about half a ton per acre per year. On one tenth of the ranch, somebody provided funding for, you know, the researchers provided funding for them to apply compost to jumpstart that sequestration. Mm -hmm. And so on that portion of the ranch, the carbon sequestration was something like 10 times as high. So it's like an already good thing becoming like 10 X as effective through compost and, you know, kind of uh, scaling up that um, soil carbon restoration through soil biology. And so the total benefit after five years or something, you know, the numbers were showing that that one tenth of the ranch had taken in as much carbon as not burning a million gallons of gas 
Yeah, I remember you said that in one of your talks. That was awesome. Yeah, that, that's, these figures is really how you get these ideas into people's heads to like kind of strike a chord and be like, wow, we should really make moves on something if it's like measurably beneficial, especially when we're kind of, we're like, we're like in the fourth quarter and we're down by a couple touchdowns. So we got, we got to get moving, got to get moving. Right. Um, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about that you've said in a couple of your talks is um, about how the organic movement has failed to kind of move beyond 2% of the acres of farmland. I think it was in this country. Um, I'm, I'm curious why you think that is and how we, how can we kind of learn from the failures of other movements to kind of have greater success in this regenerative movement? This is like very, very important, like life or death kind of thing, you know? Well, I don't want to frame it as a failure because I think the organic movement is amazing and super successful. Like in the past, well, no, no, in the past year, it's like uh, grown like 13% or, you know, super fast growth. But the reality is just that like capitalism is extractive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like completely, you know, based on how quickly you can extract natural and human resources, you know, and so basically when you imagine uh, somebody paying like a three X premium or two X premium for the good organic product, you know, if you imagine you're doing that at, you know, a great local grocery store or at Costco or Walmart or whatever that premium or at a restaurant, you know, that premium is trickling down through the food economy and that farmer or rancher or whatever it is would end up with, you know, a few cents on the dollar that the consumer is spending. And they're, they're getting that few cents on the dollar and that might help, you know, them kind of make ends meet and like have a good livelihood, but it's definitely not kind of enough uh, momentum essentially mm-hmm. to like incentivize a neighbor, a neighboring farmer to like borrow half a million dollars from the bank, switch to regenerative organic, you know, plant 10,000 trees, apply tons of compost, you know, plant a bunch of cover crops, begin a whole new like direct to consumer program or whatever. Like there's no way for anybody to switch. And so in a way, you know, going back to this renewable energy analogy, it's almost like saying, you know, hey, why why doesn't every single citizen just like borrow $20,000, climb up on the roof, put up solar panels, negotiate with their landlord, you know, all the different things. No one expects anybody to do that. That's not realistic. Mm -hmm. But there's programs like across the country that just started in around 2015 where consumers are improving the grid. And so, you know, you're paying five bucks a month on your utilities bill. Maybe it's beginning as an opt-in program, 10% of people opt in, then 20, then 30, then the city council flips it. It becomes an opt-out program. 90% of people are participating. Millions of dollars is flowing to improve the grid. Hundreds of cities and counties have switched to, you know, have made commitments to 100% renewable energy through those kinds of like collective action frameworks. And so the proposal in the food system with regenerative ag is like, well, we basically need to switch all the acres, half the acres, like a really, really big undertaking. So let's see, is that going to happen from like a few people, you know, buying the good cherry tomatoes at the farmer's market? It's like billions of dollars of change has to happen. Or should we just start getting like a buck a month from everybody and just start switching it? And it could even be a buck a month on the trash bill to build compost infrastructure and pay to get that compost onto farms and ranches. While you're at it, why don't you have cool businesses opting in and sending 1%, you know, et cetera. And so that's sort of where I think we're in the very, very early days of it, but we're seeing our work as kind of creating that seamless circular economy where, you know, one penny per dollar can just go towards this solution instead of like 
making that making it impossible for people like hey go drive across town and buy the five dollar cherry tomatoes and then let's cross our fingers and hope that 50 years from now something changes you know we're saying like send the one penny let's just change it next month what a response man that was awesome yeah that that totally makes sense amazing response wow i I need to go back and think about that a lot more but uh you know for the sake of the podcast i'm I'm curious why you've decided to expand here to colorado because zero food print began in california right yeah it's a great question so it really began um because while we were running this restaurant the perennial we met phil taylor from mad ag boy um, mad agriculture and you know so like here's a guy who's a former biogeochemist understands carbon farming and has shifted to community organizing, right? Like grassroots organizing, you know, literally um, grassroots and also figuratively. And so like, <laughs> you know, I was very impressed uh, with his approach and mindset and the, and things, but also Colorado is um, really one of the world leaders in carbon farming. Right. Uh, and so like Colorado State University has created this model uh, called the Comet Planner that is basically making it possible to estimate how beneficial a, a carbon farming practice is. You know, so you mentioned tree planting before. Mm-hmm. So decades ago, whatever it might be, um, scientists would go out and probably put like a tape measure around each tree, you know, do some calculations, how tall it is, how the diameter. Okay, so here's how much carbon is coming out of the atmosphere from a forestry project. You know, takes a lot of work, a lot of tape measures around trees. At some point, they just simplified that whole process and it's an estimate. You know, maybe a satellite is, you know, doing some imaging and you're doing a calculation. Maybe it's not as accurate. Maybe there's a 10%, you know, fluctuation, but it's obviously way more practical to like estimate the benefit that way. So with carbon farming, that, that ability didn't exist before. I mean, how would it exist? You would have to like go take a soil sample, put run that through a lab, each acre is different. So you're taking like a thousand soil samples for one farm, you know, all these things, it's cost prohibitive, you know, so no one did anything ever in terms of soil carbon. And then in the past few years, people have started to understand like, oh, we got to start doing this. And so they've developed this modeling tool, you know, it's early, they're going to keep improving the model, the confidence interval is going to keep getting better. But this allows everybody to start moving forward directionally. Um, so Colorado is really one of the leaders of carbon farming, and there's a really good regenerative movement in, you know, Boulder and Colorado overall. Yeah, and let's keep it going, man. Um, tell tell me about your partnership with. Are you working with the city of Denver, city of Boulder, county of Boulder? How how is the government involved with this? Um, so it began with, uh, you know, a connection between Phil and uh, Office of Sustainability at City of Boulder, and then they looped in County of Boulder, uh, which was able to apply for a USDA grant, you know, really modest grant. Um, I think it's about $45,000 a year for two years Beautiful. to just start building, you know, a compost infrastructure and momentum around compost application and stuff. Um, so they're using some of the funds from that grant to just cover a little bit of our staff time and Matt Agriculture staff time to just work on this and build up this movement. Um, so that's how Restore Colorado began. And our hope is to kind of um, build this up into a statewide movement, you know, really soon. Um, and it's been amazing just like, you know, being on calls each week or every two weeks or whatever with, you know, folks from Boulder County and then um, Denver's Office of Climate Action and Sustainability and Resilience joined the you know group. And it really has uh, been eye-opening for me to kind of like look behind the veil at how government works. 
because basically, you know, there's almost like this impression from the public of like government is moves slowly. It's like a bunch of, you know, pencil pushers or, you know, whatever it's inefficient or something. Mm -hmm. Government is maybe that's part of it. Some people or whatever, but another part of government is like just a bunch of like awesome people working as hard as they can to like, you know, do good and solve problems. The issue is just not enough money. Right. You know, like if you gave every government in the world, like an extra million, an extra billion dollars, think how many more problems they would solve. So the issue here with carbon farming is that, you know, state of California, Boulder County, et cetera, everybody wants to do more carbon farming. They don't have a budget for it. Mm. So, you know, you could imagine like, okay, let's, it's too important. We got to start doing it. So what would you do? Like defund education, you know, defund renewable energy, defund mass transit. No, you, those are all good things too. And so this type of program is exciting. And that's why sort of like some governments are starting to work with us because it's a way for the consumer who wants this thing anyway, you know, you want more resilience in your community and your food system. You know, you want more water because your face, you're staring down the barrel of a drought year, you know, or everything yep. you want healthier food. And if consumers are willing to pay that one penny, then we can start changing, you know, thousands of acres, millions of acres. If not, then it's going to be 10, 20 years until it's too important and governments start having more budget for it. And even then it would only come from taxes anyway. Yeah. Well, you can have all the pennies you want from me, Anthony. That's no problem at all. Awesome. Um, let's, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about uh, more about Restore Colorado because I have not heard of it until uh, we were connected. So how is it distinct from Zero Footprint and what is like the mission and the vision behind Restore Colorado? Well, thanks for, and it'll be a good chance to clarify. So Zero Footprint is our nonprofit organization and we're essentially like working with businesses and, you know, philanthropists, citizens to just get money towards these solutions. Absolutely. And then the Restore Colorado, you know, fund essentially is like where that money goes. And then we're working with Matt Agriculture and other, you know, soon to be other local conservation experts on providing grants to farms and ranchers to fund these changes on acres. And so it's literally just like, you know, to pay for the compost, to pay for the cover crop seeds, a little bit of labor to, you know, plant the seeds and do these things. Um, and so, so basically Restore is like the, the grant program mm -hmm. um, run by Zero Footprint in collaboration with local stakeholders. Yeah. Okay. I got you. That makes sense. All right. So let's talk a little bit about something local. I'm not sure how many times you've been over to the, is it McCauley family farm in Longmont? So, so this is like the pilot project that you guys are working on over here. So how is that looking on like a day-to-day -day basis? Because this is something that people in this city in Boulder can actually go and visit. Yeah. So Marcus McCauley is um, an amazing grower, you know, doing work on his family farm. And also I think there's some early collaborations with Boulder County um, to, to do regenerative carbon farming practices on some land that, you know, was heavily degraded um, from other uses, but is kind of like owned by the county and is part of like um, the ag and open space districts. Uh, and so, you know, Marcus is doing great work. Um, I haven't been to his farm. It's mostly, uh, you know, mad agriculture is kind of like the boots on the ground and our farming experts in the region. Love them. Um, but basically they've also organized a few other projects with, um, frontline farming in Denver and uh, gamma grass and livestock. And so just a couple different projects are already starting to be underway um, kind of concurrently with Macaulay's. 
Right. Hmm. It's very interesting stuff. So complicated. It's like trying to understand how nature works and how we're like the stewards of the planet. Uh, it's so, if, if only there was a way to kind of get everyone, yeah, like diagrams or some sort of models to show people that makes it very simple. I like how you use numbers and figures like 1% or 2% to get people to be like, oh, all I have to do is give a penny and I'll be good. But um, let's, let's talk about this idea of like table to farm versus like farm to table. Cause that's this, if we, you know, we make a bill and we get a surcharge of 1%, that's like table to farm. Whereas the uh, what I talked to about with to Phil about was like farm to table. So what what is like the distinction between those two ideas and why are you a proponent of one over the other? Well, I'm definitely a proponent of both. Okay. Uh, but what's what we've known for years in the food system is farm to table. And you know, that's basically like supporting the good farmer, let's buy the good stuff. You know, hopefully if we do that, more farmers will switch, you know, to regenerate the slow method in theory. Yeah. And so, so we should all do that. Like if you can afford to do that, if you have the bandwidth to like buy from good farmers and stuff, we should. Uh, Americans spend something like 6% of their income on food. It's the lowest of any developing nation, you know, or whatever. A lot of that is because the federal government farm bill, like the way it's organized, almost like incentivizes unhealthy soil. Yeah. And it's sort of like created an artificially cheap food system. You know, so that's part of why, you know, you have these, you know, big problems where it's like a conventional farmer has crop insurance. If they switch to regenerative or organic practices, they're not eligible for crop insurance anymore. Why would anybody switch? You know, you're, you would be taking like a huge risk by switching all these different issues that are like too big for the average consumer at the grocery store or at a restaurant. What the table to farm movement that we're starting is trying to do is make it possible to just send that one penny to make the direct change immediately. Um, and so instead of like trying to make a good choice within almost like a fundamentally broken system, we're saying like, just use one penny and just make the change that we all want to see. Right. That's, that's really cool. That makes a lot of sense. I just want to ask, how, how do you think the average citizen can support this renewable food economy by beyond just going at to restaurants that are partnered with Zero Food Print Era making this one, one penny donation? How can the average citizen get involved? And then beyond just buying organic, what is something that people can do on like a day-to-day -day basis to get this movement moving more quickly in the right direction? Well, thanks for asking. So I think, I think there's a few different like calls to action that would make sense for the average person. Um, compost, first of all. That's so huge. It's really, really huge. If you have a local program where you could opt in, you know, pay a few bucks a month, whatever it is, and start composting, um, that's like really, really big. Um, I heard a stat from, you know, the biogeochemist, like science guy kind of working on compost stuff recently where scientists think that each ton of compost applied to farmland and rangeland and stuff can take three to nine tons of carbon out of the atmosphere. Wow. So if you think about just like, you know, a whole city that is not composting and That's what insane. that opportunity is, it's like, it's almost like a biodiesel spill, you know, just <laughs> blowing into the atmosphere. Yeah. And so you're, you can do your part by just composting. Um, yeah. That's huge. There's an amazing movie, uh, Kiss the Ground. You know, Love if you it. want to learn more about regenerative ag, watch the movie. It's very optimistic. Um, Definitely. You can, we, on our website, just, you know, projects like Macaulay Family Farm, you can just sign up to make a donation. So you could just be like, I'll just send 10 bucks a month to this kind of local 
carbon farming work. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Project Drawdown estimates that for each dollar invested in regenerative ag and managed grazing, you get $40 in benefit. And, you know, you could think of it as like building soil wealth. And so you're, you know, the soil holds more water, the crops are more resilient, the food is more nutritious, the farmer is more profitable, and you're taking carbon out of the atmosphere. And so, you know, you, you know, I think a lot of the paralysis around climate change in a way is like, you know, what would you do anyway? Um, would you fund some project in Ethiopia or something like you feel really disconnected from that, right? But if you're actually able to just fund a climate beneficial project, you know, basically in your own backyard and has all these co-benefits for your own community, what's, what are you waiting for? You know, if you want to work on climate, here's how to work on it. Um, so those are, you know, support a zero footprint restaurant, get some businesses and whatever on board. Um, but especially you could just directly fund it or compost. Those are probably the two biggest. Yeah. Why, why is it that composting is, is so, un, is so uncommon? Is it like a newer phenomenon? Well, the benefits are more newly understood by okay. science, like, but you know, the, the reality in a way is that uh, like the food system, farming system sort of like evolved out of slavery. Classic. And the waste hauling system, you know, especially in like big cities and stuff, probably sort of evolved out of like the mafia, you know, or whatever. Like, right. Um, and so it's the waste hauling system usually historically has not been about the environment. You know, it's just been like somebody dealing with it. And, you know, you have all these great organizations like Recycle Colorado and different things, the U.S. Composting Council and stuff working on it. Um, but I think that now there's, now that there is this understanding of the importance of compost, that infrastructure needs to happen and that shift needs to happen. You know, that has to be like as high of a priority as renewable energy. Definitely. Oh, geez, man. There's so many things that need to happen. And honestly, Anthony, I, I really appreciate the work you're doing. I appreciate you coming on the podcast today and sharing your story. As you might've been able to tell, a lot of this scientific soil stuff goes over my head, but I'm really, I'm really glad that you came on and shared. It's really interesting how you had this prolific rise in the restaurant industry and you've, you've kind of chosen to go into something a lot more I don't know, more noble, like a nonprofit to fight climate change through regenerative ag. It's, it's really cool, man. And it's, it's been great talking to you. I guess my last question is kind of what advice do you have for, for young people who are passionate about changing our economy for the better? Jeez. Uh, it's well, loaded. All, thanks. <clears throat> yeah. Thanks for the kind words. Um, you know, first, I just want to address the soil science stuff. Like soil science is really complicated and soil biology is really complicated. And that's part of why it's taken so long for people to even like start to understand it. But I think there's also just an element of common sense where it's like healthy soil has a lot of living things in it. You know, those living things make our food better and all these things. Uh, but those living things are also carbon that could either be in the atmosphere or it could be in the soil. So that's it. Like the carbon could either be in the atmosphere or in the soil. In the atmosphere, it's bad. In the soil, it's good. Right, so that's what I was going to say. <laughs> want that to happen as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, in terms of what advice I would give, you know, young people or whatever you're like, to me, the thing is just um, anybody in any sector can just become part of the solution. 
And so it's like whatever you're interested in, whoever your network is, you know, whatever you already do, you can find a way to just make that part of the solution. Yeah. Whether it's like reorienting your business practice to be more aware of these issues or just given, you know, 1% of your, of your income to causes that you believe in. That's the way I see it. So, uh, Cool, man. Yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. I really appreciate you coming on and I'd be happy to, to have you and Phil come on and have like a nice open forum chat one time. It'd be great. But uh, for today, it's been a pleasure talking to you, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. And thanks for your great work on climate as well. It's an absolute honor. And all right, everybody, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Changing the Climate, the official podcast of Climate Change Realty. If you are very passionate about these issues and you know anyone considering buying or selling a home anywhere in the USA, then please visit ccrboulder.com today.